And we have had such a good time reading through. Hope it's been blessing you in the same way it has me. So let's pick up and uh, return there. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Numbers for our reading this week, starting all the way back in chapter 6, which would have been the reading for last Tuesday. And we'll go through this whole week. Number 6. Tell me some of the things that you found to be interesting to you in the reading this week. Tell me some of what came to your attention as you read. I don't know about the tabernacle. Okay. Um, they mentioned the words over and over, tent, testimony, tent, meeting. Were they within the tabernacle and what went on at those places? Well, testimony was the ref- referring to the Ark of the Covenant. Record. I did. Oh. I did it already. Thank you. Good job, Brian. Um, yeah, you broke it down, and I snuck over there and got it. So, good job. Um, the testimony is the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And so, the tent of the testimony is that is the tabernacle. That would have been set up just exactly like the instructions were given to Moses. And what went on in there would have been the sacrificial system and the priestly duties, and the testimony of the covenant, which would have been all pictures of what God was going to do in the new covenant in Jesus. And it was a perfect image of something that was shown to him that actually exists in heaven. That would have probably been the same thing. Because that's where they met with God. And his presence dwelt there. Moses and Aaron would have come up to there and would have had that time and place of meeting. You notice on several occasions the Lord's glory actually shone there at the tent of meeting, um, letting the people know that His presence was there. Those would all be the reference to the same thing. Well, they mentioned the term, but I don't ever remember an explanation of what went on there. Mm-hmm. It's from where. Uh, when you read all the priestly duties, the bread being set out, the lamp being lit, all of those things that went on day after day after day that were a testimony of a covenant that God had made and the new covenant that God was going to make in Jesus. It's a testimony to the covenant. Good question. Other thoughts from your reading this week? I thought... This was some of the most interesting reading in the Old Testament because of several things, but one is it's one of the most quoted sections when you get into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians and Hebrews and several other places look back to this particular set of events that went on in the book of Numbers as a picture of a picture of the gospel, and I'll explain that as we go a little further. Brian? Uh, this, this day one we read, I mean, it's talking, are they, are, are they presenting all these offerings because the tabernacle was finished? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Once it's finished, they start. The initial offerings, mm-hmm. and I, I noticed that they're offering, uh, I guess they're, they're a form of money, which would be, uh, that would have been a currency of the day. I guess that's what it is. Grain, too. Mm-hmm. And then telling more animals. Mm-hmm. What chapter are you looking at right now, particularly? Where are you? Okay. Yeah, this was the kind of the. A consecration day that made this day so special. It was a consecration and it was just a really big event where they're kind of consecrating the use of the tabernacle and kicking it off. That's good. When I was reading that section, I thought, man, those priests had to sacrifice all that stuff that was 
They were busy. They were busy. Yeah, they were. <laughs> they were. The they learned how to cut meat. Yeah. And, and if you remember how all the priests were divided up into different duties, so you literally have hundreds of guys laboring at this at the same time. It's not just a few. But when he broke them up, you know, there's what, 25,000 or so Levites, he broke them up into a rotating service, and then however many would take care of this part, this part, this part. So there was a system of smooth operation that was going on here. This this amount of offering raised a question in my head. I really don't understand why they offered a burnt offering. Why did the Lord want that? What was the, what was the difference between a uh, meat offering, you know, a death offering versus a, a burnt offering? Um, <clears throat> it appears, I'm going to give you the best answer I, I know of. It appears that that which was given as a burnt offering was something totally given over to God, and they um, would have nothing left of it. It would totally go to God. So that, like, you take this side of beef, you burn that whole thing, um, it's gone. And it's a picture of totally giving something over to God and trusting in His provision that He's going to take care of. And uh, it, it always pictured Christ and Christ's sacrifice and Christ's um, death. But it appears that in the burnt offering, the, the goal was to make a statement of this is totally God's. It's completely His and uh, it's gone. It's in His hands. That's the best of mine. It also seems in a couple of instances that the burning with fire actually was a picture of two things. God's judgment, which hell is clearly pictured as a place of burning judgment, and also his purification, where God used, uh, he says, I am like a refiner's fire. And the idea that, you know, if you take gold, you heat it up to a certain temperature, by fire, the dross in it goes to the top and you can skim it off and therefore you purify something by fire. It seems that those two concepts are in the burnt offering as well. God's judgment and his purifying work. And you get the book of Hebrews and it says, our God is a consuming fire. That's a kind of scary statement. It's a picture. Then you've got when God judges different people. Maybe out of the you, fire comes out from the Lord and Get some. Then you got the fire pan guys, the 250 guys later. What's got to do with them? Fire. So you got these pictures of it being a picture of his judgment as well. So sacrifice brought up to God. Death is a picture, but fire is a picture also. And both pictures of God's judgment. Good question. It really amplifies the, the wrath of God can Yes, it does. It warns. And, and that's the thing. The, the kindness of God is that in all of his pictures, he, they're warnings. It's not like God saying, this is what this is what I want to do to you. This is what he's saying. This is what I want to save you from. So it's constant that these reminders are the kindness of God wanting to save us from these things. Because they are eternal consequences. <laughs> I wonder if we could live like that nowadays. Under the law? Under the law. <coughs> the scripture says they could. Yeah. And even the most, most orthodox Jewish men and women today are only able to keep a very small slice of the law because there is no system of sacrifice today. So they they follow many other of the of the ceremonial things, dress, food. Those things, but even that they have trouble keeping up with, and then you add the whole sacrificial system. Another thing that struck me too is how many times Moses had to go on his face to God and the people of Israel. Yes. What Moses is pictured as is the constant intercessor. Where do we get that later in the Bible? Christ. Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us, he is always before God. Bringing God, sparing.
work to us. That's good. Maya, I think you raised your hand. Yeah, the Nazarites? Yes. Who are they and what are they doing? You know, evidently God had set apart this group of people to devote their lives to Him for some particular service. But it's never explained. Yeah, because they're not supposed to like change their... They're supposed to have long hair and all this other stuff. The razor never touches their head. They abstain from all forms of alcohol, anything fermented, no grapes... There's all kinds of these things, and obviously God would use them for some purpose, but He never really explains it. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting. Uh, and, and some think that the work of Samson later was a picture of the Nazarites. Uh, but that's, you know, it's not exactly the same thing. But I don't know. I have no idea. Yes? Well, kind of along with her question, Samson was a Nazarite. And it's never stated. Well, he couldn't. Once, once cut his hair, and you know, his mother turned mm-hmm. him over. You know, I think as an answer. Yeah. Know. But they're also not to become unclean by touching any. Which she failed in that whole honey and the lion incident. Yeah, and he went out and killed thousands of Philistines. He was among the dead. Uh-huh. You know, the uncleanliness of that. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of things that kind of you know. Supposed to be this way or that way. Yeah. Evidently, God has His hand on him to de- to deliver Israel because He's listed as a judge who delivers Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So His, his killing of the Philistines is an act of war that God had sanctioned, but uh, He seems to, along the way, not really stay up with what He's supposed to be doing, which is kind of the story. You know, the backstory on Samson is what's up? Why do you keep going through this cycle? you got this weakness for women. Come on. And just this cycle keeps going. And so um, it's a story of God using people that are imperfect. I just found it really difficult. You know, I, mean, I think we're probably the same way. Yet these people witnessed God's glory, witnessed His miracles, saw everything that, that God did, and yet they continually grumbled. And they complain, and they, they they just seem like an un, unthankful people. One of the things that is evidenced in that, I'm really glad you raised that. Jump over to uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, let's see. and I may not find it, so give me a second. Yeah, there it is. Deuteronomy 30. God is going to speak something in Deuteronomy 30 that is an answer to the question you just asked. Um, When we see the, the people of Israel see the miraculous work of God, I mean, think about what they've been through. I want you to just kind of walk with these people. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were abused at levels that we don't even have measurable devices to, 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 to contemplate. The kind of work that they were under, the kind of abuse they were under. Their children were being murdered, offered by being thrown into the river. All this stuff is going on. And God delivers them. He does these ten signs and you have these miracles and plagues and all this and they see it and then they pass over and they see it and then the Red Sea the sea opens and they cross it they see it I mean they're walking through there's water on both sides they get to the other side God begins miraculously providing for them out of rocks water flowing and out of the sky manna falling and all this stuff yet they never get it And so, when you get to Deuteronomy 30, you get what the whole point is. And this is something we have to understand. It's called New Covenant, and it is... Come down to verse uh, 6. Moreover, this is 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. What God says is no external thing can change you. Something on the inside of you has to be changed. God has to step into our lives and by His Holy Spirit and by the truth of His Word, He has to actually change our hearts. Ezekiel put it a little bit differently. Let's go to Ezekiel for a moment. And uh, let's see if I can find it quickly because uh, somebody help me out in Ezekiel where he gives the heart of stone and the heart of flesh 36. Is it 36? Thank you. I just looked at it and thought it was there, but couldn't find it. Yeah, there it is. Good. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And the picture that is given here is the picture that external evidence, because we are so sinful, external evidence will never change our hearts. Only God working in our hearts by His Holy Spirit, can actually bring about this new covenant life. This is the covenant that Jesus speaks of. This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. It's the new covenant. It's a covenant where God doesn't do something outside of us. He does something inside of us that enables us believe by His Spirit and by His Word. So that's a good question. And let's go back to numbers. And you want to follow up on that? They see all these things and they don't get it. That's why. Because their hearts are hardened with their from the fall and from their own sinfulness. That makes me wonder. These people thought because God chose them and nothing would happen to them. But they constantly worship idols. That makes you wonder how many of them made it to heaven. Yeah. Pretty good question. We know if we accept Jesus and have to come to our heart, we are saved. Uh-huh. And it's there eternally forever. What about them? Mm-hmm. Idols? I'll, I'll be good. Idols? I'll be good. What about them? We, all we know is uh, that those who die in faith receive the promises. And those who died without faith did not receive the promises. The need was the same, and the need was to personally trust God. And only God knows about that. He's the only one who can sort them out. When you look at all the prophecies, do you feel like they're focusing on the man? Well, if, if you go to the doctor and you have cancer, when he tells you the C word, it looks like he's focusing on the bad, but he's got to save your life, right? So the prophets were saying what they were saying, focusing on the bad, because they had cancer in their soul called sin. And the prophet's job was to bring attention to it so they would seek from God through faith, the only cure that would save their souls. So they appear to be focused on the negative, but I don't call it negative if my doctor tells me I've got cancer. I call it diagnosis. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. But it, but it is true, and I need to know so I can deal with it. And so that's what the prophets are doing. There, the cancer in Israel, it's called sinking. And he points it out and says, look at it. He calls it what it is. And then he tells them what the cure is. It's always the same cure. Turn and trust in God. Of course, in our life, it's turn and trust in Christ because the provision has been made. 
that time, let's turn and trust in God and what the provision He's going to make is. Good question. And so, for the answer for many of them, Charles, is we don't know. We'll see when we get to heaven or when we get to hell. We're all going to one of those places, so we'll see when we get there who got there and who didn't. You know, if I'm in hell and I'm filled with a bunch of Israelites who didn't know, I said, well, these guys didn't like it. And if I'm in heaven and there's some folks that aren't there, I said, those guys, you know. So, good question. You know, in chapter 22, uh, I can pronounce it G-A-L-A-A-M. Let's see, where are we? Chapter 22. Uh huh. What well, I was reading that, he's available, uh huh. He's a man of God, and there's no unanswered question. Where did he come from? Don't know. You, you run into those all along the way that God's evidently revealed Himself and called some guys out to follow Him. And then Bob, maybe going all the way back to Abraham and the time He appeared to Abraham. And Bob knew of Him because He called mm-hmm. His sin to become the first Israelite, yeah. so He wouldn't take them. Yeah, because he knew that whatever he blessed was blessed, whatever he cursed was cursed. And God was angry at him evidently along the way because evidently partway along the way he started thinking, well, I guess I'm going to be able to earn this money and, and give this curse. And God, I love that. The donkey talks, that's one of my favorite passages. Yeah, I just love that. Yeah, and it's amazing. The donkey sees and The donkey sees and the baby doesn't. He doesn't. That's Kind of sad state of affairs, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's great. All right. Other things that you observed or want to ask about from the reading this week? Uh, Earlier in Numbers, it said that God spoke to Moses and told him to observe the Passover. Does that probably indicate they had been doing it while they were there? And do the Jews still do it today? Well, they certainly still do it today. Yes, very the the uh, basically there's three sects, and I hate to see sects, three groups of Jews today. There are purely secular Jews who have no hope in the scriptures at all, zero, and nothing to do with purely secular. And there's a group that would be uh, maybe there's different labels for them. Um, Reforms, Jews is the word that's used. Um, they celebrate a lot of the festivals as a family. They celebrate the festival of lights. They celebrate Passover. They celebrate um, the the beginning of the year. Um, uh, you've ever seen on the calendar Rosh Hashanah? That's the head of the year. It's New Year's Day event. They celebrate that. They celebrate many of the festivals. And they do so with some sense of hope in the scriptures and messianic redeemer kind of thing. But it's real unclear where they are. And then there's the Orthodox who try to keep everything exactly as it is. Wherever they live. So you'll see the men with the hats and the curls and the beards and the clothes and everything trying very, very hard to keep everything that they can. But um, so ceremonially, those two groups, um, they celebrate um, the festivals, Passover and things, but they do them pretty differently. and then the one group, the, the purely secular Jewish people, don't celebrate it at all. It'd be a holiday to them like um, like Christmas is to an American who is not a Christian. It's just a nice holiday. Let's buy some gifts and you know have, have some have a big meal, do all that. But there's really no religious connection to it. So yeah, evidently at that point they're maybe celebrating. Of course, it's in the calendar. So it's coming up on the time in their calendar year that they're supposed to celebrate it. So that's why they celebrate it at that point. Because when it's originally given, it's given as a calendar thing. You go all the way back to Exodus and, and God calendars it there. 
Good question. Yes. It said that uh, that Valley uh, sent for Balaam, who was by the Euphrates. Wasn't Abraham left from the land of the Euphrates? Yes, he did. Ur, mm-hmm. and they knew about God. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the God that called Abraham was not the God of the Euphrates area. When God called him, He called him out of. Several places in the scripture tell us that Abraham was actually called out of a service of the gods of that region. And so God would not have been a major religious system in the Euphrates area. This guy would have been very, very rare up there. But Abraham was a relative of, and was, Abraham was alive, or Noah was still alive when Abraham was born. <coughs> Yeah, yeah. I think you do the years it comes out to that. He, he lived with Noah lasted about 65 years after Abraham was born. Yeah. So he would have known the God that Noah did. Not certain about that. That's the challenge there because when we're told that God calls him, um, we're told that he actually calls him from another system of belief. And I'll come up with that scripture and show it to you. I'll have to go back to models and kids, but actually he's called out of that because that region is not a region at that point that's even um, that is even devoted to Elohim at all. It would have been a rarity. And so that's part of the whole story of Abraham. I'm calling you to leave your land, your father's house, and all of that system to come out and come over here. To something I'm going to establish that's totally different. Now, whether or not you've heard of him, certainly, but it would not have been the system uh, that he would have been growing up in. I think some of his household gods are still with him along the journey, and he has to lose them along the way, which would be idols. Household gods would be little deities that they carried around with them. Good question. Somebody else started to ask something. Brian? Yeah, so just looking at the whole uh, Moses delivering the Israelites as a whole, mm-hmm. everything he went through, talking with Pharaoh and plagues and delivering, and it's like he was on a mission. Yes. Okay? And it gets to the point here to where he's surrounded by his people and they, and they start thinking they need this meat. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. it's not going to make it without. Yeah. And I know that that's representing more than just food. It's just mm-hmm. representing you know, materialistic mm-hmm. junk. You know, but they actually seems like they actually infect Moses. Very good. And and, and you know junk they want is mm-hmm. actually infecting him, and he's actually it always says that they the Lord take his wife to end his, you know. Yes. It's like they infected him. You'll see so when it's something, something serious. Yes. Go to chapter 11, verse 4. Uh, numbers, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Numbers 11, 4. And I think, Brian, you pointed something out here that's useful in our thinking. And that is. People. What is the word? <laughs> Ugliness is infectious. I'm kind of comparing it to like uh, you, hang, you know you, you hang around. Yes. Trash and it, it will infect you. That you you see this um, event starting in verse uh, verse four. Let's see, a chapter... Actually, it starts in, in verse 1. It says, Now these the people became like those who complained of diversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard this, His anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. So this is a judgment of God going on. And if you see that it's rooted in verse 4, 
contemptible people among them had a strong craving for other food. So this is the infectious group. This is the people that are there with them that are stirring it up. They're the ones who are always just like, man, this place stinks. We ain't living in the wilderness. Why did God bring us out here? He brought us out here to kill us, didn't he? Why did he leave us back in Egypt as slaves where they were throwing their babies in the river? You know, they're just, this just doesn't make any sense. But they're just the people who they're going to complain. It's folks that when you have them sitting in an air-conditioned recliner, want you to leave them back. Okay? They want you to, I, would you come over here and put the recliner back for me? You know, it's, it's the, all the blessings we have, we can't be happy with what we do have. All we can look at is what we lack, and that comes from a broken that comes from a heart that's something wrong. It didn't take the Lord long enough to get rid of them either. No, He eliminated them pretty quick. But their complaints spread. It had a lot of... Um, one of the things I've been doing is, uh, as we're going along, and I've been kind of highlighting some of the stuff with different colors. And uh, uh, the reds kind of when things aren't real good. <laughs> and so, notice this. There's a lot of that right now. And so... I've been highlighting in the reading, and and so uh, this is, go to verse 10. Moses heard the people, family after family, crying at the entrance of their tents. And basically what they were doing was they were looking at what they didn't have rather than what they had and the hope that was before them. Remember the original promise. What is the original promise that God makes to the people when He delivers them? I'm taking you to a land of milk and milk. This is a crying kid on the way to Disney World. Okay? You're making me sit in my car seat for two hours before I go see Mickey Mouse. This is the crying on the way to Disney World because they don't understand what's coming and so therefore they can't appreciate that this is a necessary part of the If you want to get there, this is what you go through. And so, um, the, the events here are people that are getting way off track. And, but this spreads and it infects. And it causes a lot of people to lose their lives because they start turning people against God. And that causes more problems down the road. So, Brian, you're right. It's, it's dissatisfaction. But that dissatisfaction really isn't in their circumstance, it's in their heart. You know, I've been around people, I, I go to Ecuador and uh, we minister among people, live up in the mountains that are really poor, live out in the jungle that are really poor. I found out that a happy heart doesn't really care what's around it. There's just something about it that's radically different. I know folks in Ecuador, they, they, they don't have anything. And they're, they're happier than most of the folks I know. There's just this joy. That, you know, my mud floor is cool. <laughs> and they, they enjoy life and God's blessing them. So uh, their blessing is, is down inside their heart. So. If you don't, there's a couple of trials of heaven out when you miss it. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, but they know what they have. I mean, they, go, they go to town and see it, and they're still happy. They go to town and they see it. And, um, one of the most incredible things about the early evangelism among the Satsula, which was pretty funny, is uh, one of the people wrote in their journal back in the 50s that said one of the interesting things about Satsula is that you can't buy them off. They don't, they don't care for money. They are happy with what they have, and God had kind of given this people group a little joy in that and thankfully brought Christ to them. I'm kind of appalled at the language or what? Moses gets on God's case. Yeah. David did. Yeah. Kill him. David said, kill him. You know, he didn't act like yeah. he was kind. Of, he doesn't, does he strike you that way? Well, Moses? Moses is talking to God? Uh, give, give me an instance and let's look at it. Anything particular that comes to your mind? Well, just finish up what you started reading. Okay. Uh, can I do all this? You can give them to me. Can I take care of it? I don't got I think there's a fundamental difference. David says, kill my enemies, and Moses says, kill me. 
Moses says, kill me. David says, kill my enemies. Moses says, kill me. Yeah, he's, he's done. But he's exhausted. I mean, he's, you got 1.6 million to 2.3 million people. And you're in charge. I mean, look at the mayor of Pineville. He's miserable. And how many of us are there? You know, you can't keep the 14,000 Pinevillians happy. And we all have nice homes for the most part. And life's pretty decent. And here's 1.6 to 2.3 million people who are living in the desert and buried the whole thing. But what did God do to remedy it? He killed a big chunk of them. But what else did he do? He gave him. Exactly right. He gave him. Uh, he took up his spirit and put on the others and they all worked together. And you see this happen with Moses several times. You see, one time his father-in-law takes him aside and says, Hey, you can wear yourself out. You need to appoint some guys to help. Because every day he was sitting from sun up to sundown judging cases. He says, You're going to have to appoint some judges to work with you on this. So sharing the load and bearing the load together is something that they learned. Yeah, I, and it's, it's, I wouldn't be talking to God like this. Well, you know, I I think we can safely say that sitting where we are today. I, I have no idea how we would talk to God if we were put in that extreme of a circumstance. As you look at Job and how he ended up talking to God, and he was considered by God. What did God say about him? Blameless. And, and he ends up running his mouth to God big time. And what does he say at the end when God speaks to him? <laughs> so, I think that when we're in a circumstance where we're not sure exactly what that'd be like, I have no idea how we can talk to God. I've gotten pretty sassy several times myself. I, think, I don't know why I can live through it. I think My, God, in those situations, I think God understands their heart and understands the burden that they, yes. they're on because they're, they have such a load that they're dealing with Job and the loss of his entire family, basically, and all the things that he mm-hmm. lost in Moses in this situation even more. I think God understands the heart, and it's not out of, I want to be rebellious, and I want to make you mad, or I want to be mean to you. It's, I'm hurting it, I broke it, and I don't have any more strength left. Exactly. I think that's what they're going off of. And I think that dovetails with Jesus' words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This beautiful picture of us bringing our brokenness and inability to handle these. I mean, how many times do you ever in your life want to throw your hands up? Any of y'all ever done that? Goodness. I mean, it, that, that can sometimes be a weekly thing. You know? Come on, Lord. Um, but, uh, Pastor, that, those almost 600 men and all the kids and wives and everything that came out of there. There have been generations of them who had not known the Lord at all. Mm-hmm. And so they, he got all this mixed group out there. They were Israelites, but they they didn't they weren't a little Baptist church that he was mm-hmm. leading across the, the sands. They would have been worse because they'd have formed a committee. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they didn't know the Lord. Probably some of them didn't want to go. Well, I can't speak for that, but what, what we do know is they had seen the evidence of the Lord very clearly. The, the, the miracles and the signs of the Passover were all intended to show God's power over all of the local deities of Egypt. The local deities of Egypt had affinities with all ten of the things that go on and you can go back, and if you went through the Gospel Project, it actually laid some of those out. Had affinities, and God was just demonstrating, I am the, I am the power here. I have authority over all the deities of Egypt. They are not gods at all. I am God. And that's what He says all the way through. They will know that I am Yahweh God. And so, they had enough evidence not to act like this. So, we can't kind of excuse them when they've seen all that, Red Sea, chariots, and all the water washing back over Pharaoh's army, and manna falling out of the sky, and you eating it, and 
They'd seen it. And so the, the, the evidence was there. So God only judged them at the level that they were accountable for, and it was enough to well, swallow them up. They, that's true. The earth opens up, and did y'all see that happen this past week? The earth, earth opened up and swallowed him yeah. in his bed. Now here's the deal. I don't care where you're at. If God wants to get you, there's no escape. There's a place in the book of Amos where it says that the day of the Lord will be like a man who is going down the path and he runs into a lion. He turns and he runs and he runs into a bear. He turns and he runs and he gets to his house and he leans against the wall and says, Oh, home safe. And a serpent bites him. <laughs> and as soon as I read that thing about the sinkhole, I thought, That's the way it is. You're laying there in the, you know, you got your iPad right there reading, or you or you got your, your, you know, your TV on, and all of a sudden, and the earth just swallows you. And, and the message there is just like in Jesus' day, where they asked him about the tower that had fell on the people in Siloam and killed 18 people, and they said, Jesus, what do you think? He said, here's what I think. If you don't repent, you will likewise perish. All of these things are assigned to us and a memory device that they turn and follow the Lord so that when your day comes, you're just whisked away to heaven to His presence and you know Him through Jesus. So that's that's always on my mind when I see things like that. Well, is it any different today, the principle of this disobedience? Uh, I don't think so. I think that God just made it a little more obvious in those days as because He was giving object lessons. But the principle is the same. You don't serve God, there's a day coming that you're going to have to reckon with Him. And yet it's not about works, it's grace. It's all about faith. It's about trust. That's the main lesson we're going to get to in a minute because I'm going to give a summary here in a minute that I think is going to help us with this. My. I think it's interesting in um, chapter 21, verse 4, I guess, where the people again start grumbling about food. And I feel like they're always grumbling about food. Yes. It's like they're always hungry. Yes. But God keeps giving them food, and they're like, "Well, we don't like this. We want something else. We should have been back in Egypt because we like that food better." Yes. And He sends snakes to kill them. Yes. That whole snake thing. Did y'all like that? <laughs> I uh, I'm not a guy that's really, really, really scared of snakes. But how did getting bit by a poisonous snake it does bother me? You know, snakes don't scare me like if I see one, I don't get to willies and all that. Um, you know what the willies are? That, that kind of feeling? Um, I don't get that, but the idea of one actually biting me really does. So here they're being bitten. Where in the New Testament does this event come back to play? Oh, yeah, the serpent shaking out, but the, 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 the brazen serpent on the pole. Where does it come back to play? Now, this is one of the weaknesses of Baptists. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, where's my pedestal? That is a symbol of the medical community uses now. It is, but it is what precedes John three sixteen. As Moses, exactly that. As Moses looked at the serpent in the wilderness. So shall the Son of Man be lifted up that all who believe in Him shall have life in Him. For God so loved the world. That's why we've got to be careful about not reading the whole thing. I'm not saying it changes John 3.16, but it's the context of John 3.16. And the context is the story of this. The people are sinning. Judgment is coming. They are bitten with the curse of death. They have no hope because these are deadly vipers. All they have to do is believe. They trust that God has made a way that's not related to their works because their works have already condemned them. Right? Their works have condemned them. Why would you get bit? Because you grumbled. <laughs> Why do you grumble? Because you have a sinful heart. So you're bit and you are cursed and you are going to die. So how can you be saved? Can you start unsinning? 
Can you say, okay, here's what. Let's start a religion now. And what your religion is going to be like. Let's do all these things and get real moral. And no, they're dying. And they have one hope. You look up and you believe. Something is going to be raised up. And you're going to look up and you're going to see it. And it's actually going to be a symbol of what bit you. It's going to be a symbol of your judgment. If you'll believe this, if you'll believe this, you'll be healed. And Jesus says it himself, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, and all who believe in him shall be saved. Isn't that simple? I turn and I look to Jesus and I believe, I trust that this is the remedy for my sin. And He saves me. That's pretty good. That's the message of the Old Testament. It's a message of trust. It's not a message of works. It never was. The works were always to show that they trusted or why they needed to trust Him. They never were saved by works. It was only by misinterpretation that they saw the law as their salvation rather than the law pointing to their salvation. And so, when we see that story, it's the story of faith. It's great. It's great. Other questions? Things that maybe we're discussing tonight popping into your mind or things you read this week? You say, well, I'm not going to ask about that. You know, the thing that gets me, and history says it always repeats itself, how it repeats itself. Mm -hmm. You see that cycle of sin? Mm -hmm. I was just thinking when Moses was talking to God, and um, he brought up the point as to how he was talking to God, and then he brought up the point as to God knowing Moses' heart. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be misunderstood in that, you know, it's okay to talk God, but I do feel like, or I've experienced in, in, in my life that my honesty before the Lord um, helps in my healing and mm -hmm. also helps me to grasp His mercies. Now, I don't go to the Lord, or I at least try not to go to the Lord. Keep talking, this is very good. But to go to the Lord and just, <laughs> you know, God, this, I don't get it. I, I think there's value in that because I think that it opens up my heart and, and that I'm being honest with him, it helps me more to maybe be willing to um, see what he's doing in a different way. Does that make sense? I think there is a grumbling that draws us to the Lord because we know that he is the only one who can help us. And we go to him like Moses and we say, did I bear all these children? You've given me these people. I didn't bear them, but they're yours. And if you can't fix this, I'd just rather you kill me. He's, been, he's drawing to God. The grumbling of these people was grumbling against slash away from the Lord. Moses always in his complaints to God were matters of faith. God, I want to trust You. I want You to be my provider. I want You to be the resolver of the situation. These people that are highlighted in, in the serpent issue and in the, and in the food issue and in Korah's rebellion issue were all people who were trying to draw people to turn them against the Lord or to turn them away from the Lord. And so that goes back to what Maya said. God knows the heart. And He knows when we have legit struggles that we're crying out to Him because we have nowhere else to go. That's what Moses was doing. I guess I struggle sometimes with... Um... <clears throat> Seeing individuals that really struggle being honest with God, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I have um, 
a, a person in my life that I just feel like that has allowed a wall to come between her and the Lord because the honesty doesn't seem to be something she can really do mm-hmm. to the Lord and yet you know you can to others sometimes and, and in that way it, it ends up more like grumbling yes and I agree I agree and that and I think that that's where we've got to always let the Lord resolve the things we're dissatisfied with by finding satisfaction in Him. If I don't like the man, I need to keep eating it and ask God to help me get used to it. And appreciate that He's providing for me. I think this is what happens in marriages. I think this is what happens in jobs. I think this is what happens in... In so many aspects of life, God grants us something, gives us something, and we always look at what's wrong with it. And it destroys us. Rather than always being thankful and asking God, help me to appreciate what you have given. And I think that's what Paul's dealing with in in Corinthians where he says, uh, three times I asked the Lord to remove this from me. and Three times he said no. And therefore he spoke to me and said, My grace is sufficient for you. So Paul then turns around and says, Therefore I am well content with distresses and weaknesses. I am well content with injuries and insults. Because when I am weak, then the Lord is strong. And he went through much to get to that point. Yes. (laughs) Yes, he did. I agree. One other thing on that too. You know, when the Lord says do this, also include the outsiders. Mm-hmm. How many of the outsiders had something to do with that? Obviously, some of them did. But when you get on down the road and you've got the Korah and the Korahites, Korahites running this show, these are insiders. Now, they may have been infected or affected by them, but God said, you guys know better. And so the ground opens up. So that means we've got to be careful from outsiders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people who are not of faith, we have to be careful how we let them influence us. I think we always have to make sure of which way the influence is going when we deal with people who are not believers. We need to always be around them because God has not called us to leave the world. We need to always be among them because the Lord has not called us to be recluse. But we have to make sure which direction the influence is flowing. I need to be so full with Jesus what is flowing is toward them a Christ-like influence. But if I go to them empty and I'm not walking in fellowship, I may be drawn to the things that they are drawn Which is what's at the end of our reading. What happens at the end of our reading this week? What's the last section of last week's reading? At the end of, uh, we're not quite in the very last chapter, but at the end of our reading, we've got them, what are they doing? Anybody remember? Verse chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. What do we get there? You know, and let me summarize here in a minute. While the Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Remember I shared with you that the sacrificial systems within the Canaanite uh, cultic system were grossly immoral. It included both male and female prostitution and images of male and female body parts. Some of the stuff that that uh, you can go and look at some of the Canaanite images um, in the archaeological finds from the area, and they're pretty, um, they're pretty stunning, pretty provocative, because they have um, they have grotesque sexual overtones, and therefore these things that they are involved in in chapter 25 are really, really bad. Do you think um, God redeems Moab kind of through Ruth and through Mm -hmm. her um, obedience with Naomi and Boaz and things? Certainly. And it gives Moab a hope and a place in 
that picture in the book of the Revelation where it says every tongue and tribe and nation are represented there. So some of Moab is redeemed there. Absolutely. Even though they were really bad. And that the lineage of the Messiah actually passes through her. That's pretty awesome, too. Did y'all notice a little bit of um, God watching out for ladies in this reading? Anybody notice anything? That women were actually allowed to be inheritors of property? You wouldn't think that that's way ahead of its time. If you'll watch some of the movies that are built around the writings of uh, Old England, you'll watch a lot of the stuff that was written by um, uh, Pride and Prejudice. What's her name? Jane Austen. Jane Austen. You'll see women can't even, in that age, inherit land or property or own anything. And you'll see that God, all the way back here in the Old Testament, says, now that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. All right? If there's, there's no inheritors here, yeah, they can own property and all that. So um, a lot of times you get these pictures that the Bible is what produced that kind of a culture when the Bible actually speaks opposite of that kind of culture. Well, look at the women uh, in American descent. No serotonin's over there. Mm-hmm. They got no sense of what goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such sadness in the Islamic cultures. You know, in the Indian culture, the American Indian culture, the property passes to the women. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I've got some of that in my, my bloodline. Okay, let me give a summary. We've got 10 minutes left. Let me give a summary that I think is important for us tonight. Because there's some things happening in numbers that we need to kind of focus in on because the New Testament brings them up and um, in. in points to them. So let me take you first to 1 Corinthians and then to Hebrews. I'm going to do this really fast. (laughs) Way faster than I would like to, but I think just a quick glance. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll just read it quickly. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which was following them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, all these things are pictures of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That was the question, Charles, you were asking earlier. God was not pleased with them, they were laid low in the wilderness. Okay? And then he gives a list of all of the things that they went through, and then he comes down to verse 11 and says, now these things happen as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there's a, there's a it's not only a history lesson, it's a theology lesson. And so what is the theology of that passage that Paul wants us to get? So hold that thought. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me, they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So the theology of Hebrews 3 also points to the same events, which is the story in Numbers. So let's go back there and we'll get a quick summary of it and then maybe challenge you with a question. Chapter 13, it's time to go to the land of Canaan. Send some guys up to check it out. How many do they send? Twelve. Okay, send out somebody representing each tribe. Send twelve. The spies go up and they see the land. They say, oh, wow. There's one cluster of grapes brought back. How big is it? 
How big is it? Two men to carry. It takes two men to carry it on a pole. Now I've seen those big globe grapes that they raise now. Have y'all seen those things? Those big globe grapes are like this big. They sell them in Ecuador. We can't eat them because of the bugs that are down there. But they sell them in Ecuador. It's huge. This 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 cluster grapes so big. Two guys bring it back on a pole. You know, can't you see them walking back in and saying, "We've never seen nothing like that." That's awesome. So they bring all this in, and then they say this. Listen to what they say. It says in verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, This is number 13, number 13, 31, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land which we went through is... A land that devours its inhabitants. People are of great size. We're like grasshoppers in these sites. In chapter 2 of verse 14, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. That's their thing. That's their thing. That's exactly what Yeah, that's the same song, different verse. Um, okay. Now, God tells them that they were supposed to trust Him to go up. Alright? And they don't. Is God happy with that? No. What does He do? You're going to get lost. You're going to send them another high ground mountain. Every one of them are going to die. 20 years of age and older, everybody dies. Except two. Except two. Who are they? Caleb and Joshua. The two guys gave a good report. Everyone ever going to die. Okay, God's not happy. Now, come over to chapter 14 and look at verse 39. We'll try to summarize this in five minutes. And when Moses spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the early morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Okay. Here we have two groups of people. Same group of people in two events. First round, God says, go up. And what do they say? No. Why do they say no? Because they're scared. Fear. No trust. No trust. That's it. Okay. Then this other group goes up and says, we're going to go up. We can do it. And God says, no. But what did they trust in? Okay. This is the perfect picture of the difference between religion and faith. Religion can very easily be something we do because we trust in ourselves. I can do this. I can make God happy with me. I can do this. Watch me. Watch what I do. I will do it. And God says, I don't want that. Because it's not rooted in the one thing that we're supposed to have in a relationship with God. What is that? Trust. Faith. Trust. The whole story of the Israelites and the wilderness is about one thing. It's not about anything else. It's not about the establishment of a religion. It's not about the establishment of a system. It's about people trusting the provision of God. And that points to the one provision that God makes. What is the one provision God makes that everything in the Old Testament points to? Christ. Christ. Every picture, 
Every inch, every word, everything, every event in the Old Testament is a precursor, a forerunner, a pointer, a direction service that points us to God sending Jesus to save us. And that the one thing that we do to receive Jesus is salvation is not a salvation of religion. It's not a salvation of buildings and budgets and events. It's a salvation of trust. Anything around that flows from it. But it is a salvation of trust. God has been very persistent through the ages to point us to one thing. Trust that's it. That's what he's been after all the time. And so when we see this picture of one group that won't go up because they don't trust, and the next time they try to go up, but it's not about trusting God because he's already told them different. It's about trusting in themselves and their abilities. And that won't work. And so it all comes back to this. God is weaving in all of the stories of the Old Testament a clear call for you as an individual, to simply do this. Place your trust in Him through Jesus. And that's all. Everything else flows from that. Jesus put it like this. I am the vine. You are the branches. The branch that abides in me will bear much fruit. But, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that anything we accomplish in life apart from Jesus ends up equally nothing. But that which we get from abiding in Him is a fruit produced because evidence that we know. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for letting us get together tonight wrestle through and kind of talk through the events of the Old Testament. Thank you for the clear, simple, continually um, illustrated truth that what you're calling us to right now is to trust you through Jesus. Please give this to us as a gift that we may trust we believe, and as a result, we will receive forgiveness, life eternal, and the grace of being joyful in our journey. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love all y'all. Glad you were here tonight. And uh, we'll shut this off as we get ready to go. Thank you, Mike.